Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to navigate around this little obstacle. We're so glad to see you. My name is Steve. I'm one of the, one of the pastors here, and uh, I love that space, and I appreciate um, that band. Can I hand you this? <laughs> Thank you. Um, hey, so I don't know if you guys are uh, into, like, the election stuff, right? It's like election fever time in our world. And so, so my family, I have two sons, my family is watching uh, some of the debates and all this week. And my son Hudson says to me, he says, hey, dad, I think you'd be a good president. <laughs> I said, well, thanks, son. Why do you think that? And he said, well, you talk a lot. <laughs> okay. And then he says, then you'd love Jesus. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay, those, those are the two requirements, I guess. And then I said to him, I said, well, what do you think about this Trump guy? Do you think I can beat him? And he kind of looked and he was like, yeah, oh yeah, you just have to get started right now. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Uh, so I don't know what to uh, say to you to do with that, <laughs> but I'll say if you don't know what candidate to vote on either side or whatever, uh, hey, I'm available. I'm getting one vote. I know that. But, but it made me think, you know, of life sometimes. I, I, think, I think sometimes in life, we, we want things to be just that simple, right? I mean, Dad, you should be present. Okay, good son, kind of thing. But, but we all know, of course, that that's not how life works. We can't just wish something to happen and then it will actually happen. It's not how it works in life. And the same goes true for our spiritual life. I mean, it would be great if we could just all of a sudden be these deep, devoted, in tune with God kinds of people. And not only that, we long for change in our life. We long to be made new, as we're talking about in this series. And that's why we're doing this series, because through Jesus, what he offers us is to be made new. But of course, that change doesn't come easy, certainly doesn't come quickly. As someone once said, we are trees, not daffodils. And God's dreams and designs for our lives, they have a long-term arc, and sometimes we don't like that. And this whole series, this month, new, it's designed really around five key concepts that really intend to frame how real change happens in the life of a human being in your life and mine, and invites us and, and describes for us during the series how in exactly we participate in that process. So today, we're going to zoom in on this idea of life-giving practices, life-giving practices. In other words, what practices or habits, perhaps you could use the word rhythms or even spiritual next steps... What do you need in your life to cultivate the kind of change that God desires and God really dreams of for your life? Philippians 1.6, I love this text, and you may be familiar with it. Philippians 1.6 says this. It says, He, God, who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. And one important thing to recognize here is that God is the one who started the work. He began the work, and God's going to fulfill his part in the process. He's going to be faithful to complete the work that he started in your life. It also means that, that our life, the work of our life, isn't our project. It's God's project. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a passive process. I mean, we have an active role, a significant role in, in, in that process along the way. And so the first question that really emerges from that text is, what exactly is the good work 
that God is doing. I mean, what does the Bible really mean about that? And in essence, I would describe it like this. It's the work of spiritual transformation or spiritual formation, which basically is the process of God shaping you, forming you, molding you, transforming you into a certain kind of person. And you ask into what exactly is transforming you into, well, it's the person that God wants you and designed you to become. But, but this process, this becoming, it's not simply about improving your life or becoming just a better version of yourself. It's about real change. And when you think of this classic um, image of a, of a caterpillar moving to a butterfly, we, we know how that process works. And it's not like the caterpillar just sort of puts on makeup or something like some girl would do in a mirror, you know. It's not like that's how it goes. The caterpillar turns into something completely new, something radically different than it was. And God doesn't want to keep us a caterpillar. He doesn't want to simply add makeup to the process, thankfully. He wants to change us into something so spectacular, so magnificent, that we can't even imagine it or achieve it without him. The vision that God has for your life is that you would be continually transformed, or one might say conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But it's not just for your sake, it's for the sake of others and for his glory. Paul says it like this in the scriptures. He says, Now all of us, with our faces unveiled, reflect the glory of the Lord, as if we are mirrors. And so we are being transformed. That's you and me. We are being transformed, metamorphosed, try to say that word, into his same image, Jesus, from one radiance of glory to another, just as the Spirit of the Lord accomplishes it. I mean, that's the vision of God for your life in a nutshell. And the idea here is that we're being transformed by God's Spirit into becoming more and more like Jesus Christ himself in his essence, in his substance, in his character, and that looks in our lives like the internal world that exists inside of us and the external outflow of that, that gets changed. That substance, that essence gets changed. Paul says in another place, Philippians uh, chapter 2, he says this, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is doing that work inside of you. At least he desires to do that work inside of you. And there's this ongoing alignment that happens where you begin to desire, as Paul says, what God desires. You begin to see how he sees. You begin to live how he lives, do what he does, talk like he talks. I mean, that's the process. That's the flow of where things are going. That's the work of God in your life. And then it brings us to a second question, really, which is this. What is actually necessary for you and me to propel this transformational work. We see this vision of God. What is necessary for us to propel the transformational work of God that we're talking about, this work of spiritual formation? I mean, you all know the expression, first things first. And the order of things is, is huge, really, depending on what you're talking about. I mean, think about, you know, the chemical chain. 
I mean, if you add or take away a chemical in certain cases, it changes the chain reaction of things. So H2O, I know I'm going to impress you with my smarts here. The, the chemical chain is for what? Water, right? Yeah, we all know that. Thank you very much. That was not a resounding water, but you're with me, I hope. But, but if you add to H2O and you get H2O2, you know what it becomes? Hydrogen peroxide, not exactly the same essence, right? A colorless, vicious, uh, vicious, 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 yeah, something like that. Um, can't say that word. Unstable liquid with strong oxidizing, oxidizing, oxidizing properties. Commonly used, see, I'm not impressing you with my intelligence, clearly. Commonly used in diluted form in disinfectants and bleaches. We know that, right? So we see how it goes from this life-giving substance, water, to a potentially lethal one. If we don't link things together in the right order, the substance changes radically. With spiritual formation, in order for life-giving realities to occur, we must let God always go first. His grace, His grace is the component that sets off the chain reaction in life. His grace is the component that sets off the chain reaction in life. Anything we do only has impact because of what he did first. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us what our role and what our focus needs to be, and it reveals that we must understand the relationship between three things, effort, grace, and power. Effort, grace, and power. So in John chapter 14, sorry, 15, verse 4, Jesus says this, Abide in me, which basically means stay consistently connected to me, remain in me. Abide in me as I also abide in you. No branch can bear fruit, where the branch is here, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the gardener up before that. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. And then verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And then he says this little line, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And part of what Jesus is saying in real simple terms is, is abide in the vine. That's where you give your focus, your energy, your effort. And we have to find ways to do that. That's part of how we participate. Like the branch, we must stay tethered to the vine or we are trying to grow essentially without roots. So, so it really comes down to one simple truth here. We can't do it on our own. We can't do transformation. We can't do the work of God on our own. And it reminds me of something I did uh, that, that was way out of my ability to do. Perhaps you've done something like this too. Many of us might say that um, there are some things to do in life that are not worth the risk and that skydiving may not be worth the risk. Uh, others of you would say, no, I want to do that, have done that, want to do more of that. I don't know where you land, but several years ago I was on the ladder and I said, yeah, I want to go skydiving. So I decided I was going to pull in a few friends so uh, I pulled in a few friends and said, let's go skydiving, let's do it right. I'm, I'm young and, you know, we'll say foolish. But, uh, but one of the people involved was my new girlfriend, like a month in. 
And it's the person who's now my wife, just FYI, FYI, foreshadowing. But we're a month in, so I'm trying to win her over. I'm falling in love, the whole deal, right? So anyway, we, we get into the car, and the four of us, off we go to our destination. And we're riding in the car, and, and, and the other three people are really scared. And I'm not trying to act cool and courageous. You'll see in a moment why I'm saying that. But, but I, at that moment, I was not nervous yet. We were in the car. We had a 40-minute drive or something, and I brought my camera, because these people were freaking out, and I knew I had to, like, capture some of this. But it wasn't like the iPhone camera or whatever. It was like the handheld, right, with multiple buttons on top. Some of you don't even know what that is, right? But, but anyway, I whipped this camera out, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this stuff on tape. So I start asking them, we'll say obnoxious questions, because I was saying things like, what are your final words? <laughs> and is there anything you want to tell your parents? If it was the last thing you could tell your parents, what would you say? You know, kind of things. And on and on, they were like, shut up, shut up, shut up, you know, kind of thing. So anyway, we're driving out there. We get to the place. We, we get out of the car. We pay. We go to this classroom where they teach you and train you and prepare you. Basically how to safely jump out of an airplane, right? And, and so we're in this class, and, and, and they're telling us how it's all going to go. We put our suits on. They tell us we're going to ride tandem, as you could guess, you know, where someone's linked to your back with, you know, these buckles. And, and by the way, that, that's kind of awkward, right? I mean, that's tight quarters. Imagine someone, like, on your back just, like, all the time, you know? So we're literally, like, walking around like this for a minute, you know? But we're getting used to it. And so, so, so anyway, um, we're, we're getting ready to go. And, um, and basically, I start to see who the guy that Sherry is tandem with, and he's like, far too good looking. <laughs> and I mean, he's tall, he's built, he has an Australian accent. Oh. Exactly, right? We're all at a disadvantage. Sorry. Thank you. I know there's a few Aussies in here, so lucky you. That's your spiritual gift, I guess. But um, anyhow... For those of the rest of us, right, I'm trying to win this girl. This guy's, like, attached to my wife's back, right? Like, they're going to have a date, practically, you know, on the airplane. So <laughs> I'm not jealous or anything at that point. But anyhow, I had to get over it. And so off we went. So the group takes off, and there's 25 of us. We head toward the airplane. And the airplane, I mean, I looked at it, and my, my fear started bubbling up a little bit. And I looked at it. It looked like Wilbur and Orville Wright's airplane, really. <laughs> and so we walk up to this airplane. I'm thinking they're going to do a manual propeller or something. But we get in. Nerves are starting to, like, creep up a little bit. But I'm okay. I'm in the back of the plane, so I'm like, okay. Okay, at least I have a little bit of time for people to jump out and I kind of get used to it. So up we go, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 13,000 feet is where they told us we went. All right, my nerves are rattling a little bit. And then those doors open and talk about nerves. I mean, like I felt like my heart was going to explode. And, uh, and I'm in the back, so I'm like, okay, I got a little bit of time. But, but these people are walking up to the edge and they're just like popping off, popping off, popping off, right? Ah! And then they disappear, right? It's kind of like what happens. It's just over and over and over, right? Now I'm super nervous, right? I'm going, what is going to happen? I'm, I want out, you know? And, and that's what I'm secretly, like, wondering. But I'm, so, so anyway, it's coming closer and closer. And I get kind of right to the edge. So imagine, like, slow motion right now. But I, but I get to the edge, and I'm scared. I'm like, I, I really do kind of want out. And you know what? I'm in the back of the plane, so the humiliation will be minimal. But I look behind me, and you know there was one person behind me. It was Sherry. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to turn and look, and what I'm going to find is another fearful woman that needs to be rescued. But no, she was anticipating, like brimming with anticipation, practically pushing me out and saying, hurry up. <laughs> and so I only had one option. My manhood was on the line in that moment. So I creeped up to the edge and basically with help of a friend in the back, but he nudged me a little bit. But I, I basically jumped, right? And so, so we're flying through the air, and it's all happening so fast. 
And this skilled skydiver is attached to my back. And in that moment, I'm very grateful for him. I'm not thinking awkward. I'm thinking, I love this man, right, kind of thing. <laughs> and, and, and it was really cool because um, he would tell me, he'd whisper in my ears, hey, we're about to do a flip, <laughs> right? Or throw your hands up like this so you can fly faster or control it. Or, or, or hey, look over there, you know, because it's just like over century. Look over there, it's beautiful, you know, kind of thing. And then he says at one point, he says, yeah, and make sure when we land, you bend your knees so you don't break one of your legs. <laughs> if I wasn't scared before, now I am, right? And, and, and it was just this really cool moment to think about because this really skilled person that was way more capable, way more capable than I was, right, helped me do something I would have never been able to do alone. I wasn't at it alone. He, he literally had my back. And, and, and so we were flying through the sky. And then, of course, I'm not remembering the parachute at the right moment. So he's like, hey, tap my leg. Pull the parachute. Pull the parachute. Right? You know, pull the parachute. Parachute shoots up. I'm like, Scott, you know, gliding through the sky. He's like, hey, look over there. You know? And there was this just like breathtaking views that we were just looking around. It was amazing, right? So it was an amazing moment in the end. But, uh, but you know, when, when people go skydiving, typically, they want to do the tandem thing a few times. I don't know how many it takes until they get to fly solo, but that's their goal a lot of times. That was not my goal, nor is it our goal to do this in the spiritual life. Quite the opposite. See, our goal is to hold on to that guide, God, and never let go. We want to fly through this life tandem with the Holy Spirit. We want to take cues from Him. We want to listen to His whisper, to His voice as He guides us through the terrains of life. We want to follow, not lead. And although we may subtly slip into the lie that we don't need him, like the life-giving chemical chain deal. We desperately do. When we abide in Christ, his grace takes over, and we are now in step with the very spirit of God. Whatever effort we put into our relationship with God, he's the one who always does the heavy lifting. Yes, it demands effort, but by his grace and through his power and by his spirit, he enables us to live as he designed us to live. In 2 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this about his own life, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Often how grace plays out in our lives is it comes in power. Jesus said before he left the earth, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so when we abide, we're abiding in his grace and in his power and all that he is. He's the source of life. And so once we're committed to this idea of abiding, of what is necessary for us to propel the work of God, it moves us to this third question. And it's really an extension of the second, but how do we labor with God in this transformation work? I mean, Paul uses that word labor with God and what he's doing. How do we participate in the process even more specifically? And here's where it brings uh, to the conversation this idea of spiritual disciplines, or some call them spiritual practices. And I don't know what that word does when I say that. Some of you are like, oh, I want to like run from discipline. It makes me feel guilty and bad. And I got to put a long checklist up or something like that. But, 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 but pause with me for a moment. Because spiritual disciplines are really about plugging into the awareness that you are riding tandem with God. 
and that you are not alone and that God has your back. But we have a responsibility to engage in certain practices or habits that cultivate that awareness to live in His grace, to connect to His power. And as a result, the work of His Spirit can flourish in our lives. So simply put, our main job is to get in flow with God's Spirit. And and the primary way that we do that is with some sort of spiritual discipline or practice, which just to define that, is simply an activity you engage in to be made more fully alive by the Spirit of life. Or one might say it's a way that you access God's presence and His power. And so to engage in a spiritual practice... We have to make an intentional choice. That's our effort. That's our part. And sometimes these practices come more naturally to us. Some of you you love the word discipline and and love the routine of things, which is kind of how we think of spiritual disciplines. And others of you go, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that yet. And there are practices along the way, probably for all of us, that are more difficult, that take perseverance at times. And I remember my uh, long time ago baseball days. So I was a baseball player, and like any young kid, you know, you aspire to, to play college baseball, or, or, or the dream is that you would play in the major leagues. So, um, so, so that was me when I was, when I was a kid. And, and so what I did is, is I, I, had, I knew I had to develop practices or habits. Right? I had all this drive and all this motivation to be that. That was the vision I had for my life, the hope, the dream. And so I lined up my life that way. And I, and I remember... By the way, spoiler alert, I didn't make the major leagues, but Kate with me. But I remember in my backyard, I would get on this wall. I was a pitcher, left-handed pitcher, and I'd get on this brick wall, and I, would, and I would do my pitching motion, and I would focus in on a brick. And I'd try to hit the ball inside that brick. And day after day after day after day, week after week, month after month, right? I literally remember doing that for years, and of course, I wasn't good at the beginning, and over time, I improved. I remember as a hitter, I would go in my backyard, we had a net up, my parents helped me put it, and I would get a bat, and I would swing and hit a ball off a tee, like right? as they say, if you hit off a tee, which isn't fun, right? I mean, you, you want to like see the ball go, right? I mean, when I was a kid, I, that was like what I dreamed of, you know, way back, way back, it's going, going, gone, right? That's what you dream of, not like hit the ball into the net, hit the ball in the net, put it, take it out of, you know, but, but the practice of it, right? So they require some perseverance at time, at times. But, but over time, of course, I improved greatly. And as humbly as I know how to say, I eventually played college baseball. So, so all the practice and the habits, which I didn't like get up in the morning so excited to do that actual habit or practice, certainly not all the time, but I had the vision in mind of what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do, what I wanted to accomplish. And, and that's really the idea of spiritual disciplines or practices, Because all of us, all of us are a product of the choices we make. And someone said, first we make our habits and then our habits make us. You've probably heard that. We are the product of what we do repeatedly and consistently over and over. That's who we are and what we become. We are not what we dream about being. We are what we do consistently. And it's so important to think about this with what God wants us to become because where we end up and who we become is all about the practices and habits that we establish and curate in our lives. And so if we are serious about experiencing the life-changing power of God, we must determine 
We must choose intentionally what practices are necessary to help us reach our desired outcome. Now, on the one hand, there are an endless number of spiritual practices. And the goal here is not to make some long list and check off every box. I mean, the Pharisees did that, really, in the Scriptures. And Jesus came after them relentlessly. Spiritual practices, maybe one way that helps you think about it, is there less rules and more tools. So you think of a hammer is in your toolbox and you want to go access that hammer when you need it. Most spiritual practices are like that. And they may be useful and helpful and and help you cause transformation in a certain season of your life and in other seasons perhaps not. So I want to describe for the next few minutes three what I believe are indispensable life-giving spiritual practices. I think these practices, some of you may already be practicing them, but they can become habits for us. And in fact, there are three life-giving practices that Jesus, when you look at in the scriptures, that Jesus practiced in his own life. And so if we want to become like Jesus, our rabbi, our master, as disciples of his, followers of his, we ought to look at what he did, what practices and habits were part of his life, pay attention to those, emulate those. And so the first life-giving practice that I'll suggest to you is I'm going to use the word solitude. You may even want to write the word prayer beside that because they intersect. And I mean, there's so much to say about solitude and prayer, and, and, and perhaps we'll do a series in the near future here on, on prayer. But a highly underestimated dimension of prayer revolves around this idea of solitude. Now, I know some of you contemplative types, you know, reflective, maybe introverted types, you hear solitude and go, yay, I want more of it. There's Super Bowl parties coming up. That's going to be my solitude time. Anybody that's true of? And then there's others of you that solitude sounds like solitary confinement, you know, and and it's like isolation and removing the world, and that sounds like torture to me. (laughs) But, But solitude isn't just about silence and isolation. It's really an essential form of focused prayer. As Jesus followers were called to pray without ceasing, which of course is a tall order, right? There's this seamless connection, this seamless communion with God that he wants, And it can only springboard from a reservoir of relational strength that is grown by the spiritual practice of solitude. Solitude involves pulling away from our life and the company of others in order to give our full and undivided attention to God. And Jesus engaged in solitude frequently. And he taught his followers to do the same. And for centuries now, wise followers of Jesus have also understood the necessity and benefit of solitude. So then we step back from when we go, okay, what makes solitude so important? Well, it's the one place where we gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mold us. When we enter into solitude, the chaos of life starts to settle. Imagine like a, like a jar of river water that's being swirled and you put it down and over time it begins to settle and the water becomes clear. The water in our soul becomes clear. When we engage in solitude, we let go of usual distractions so that we can be present to the one who's always present with us. See, we are willing to be with God just as we are in solitude, awake, alert, receptive to whatever he wants to say to us. 
And God unhooks us in that space from the lesser or worldly things that we subtly come to believe that we need. When ultimately what we really need is God himself, the source of life. I resonate with this quote from a guy named Henry Cloud. You may have read, uh, I'm sorry, Henry Nowen. You may have read some of him. He's a, he's a great writer, well worth reading on, on really the spiritual life. But he says this, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to have a spiritual life. So if this practice of solitude is new to you, perhaps for some it is, what I would say to you is start small. Start with a few minutes, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and be alone with God, just you and him. Show up and be present with him and see what happens. It might be hard. It might require some perseverance. It might go against the grain of what you want to do. But keep the vision and the hope of transformation in view. Henry Nouwen says that solitude is the furnace of transformation. And let me just say this, awakening. We need this. We need this for our soul We need this for transformation. We need this for our families. We need this for our neighborhoods and our cities. Because when people bump into us in life, what spills out? Are we centered in God and connected to the source of life and goodness and grace and truth and love? Because we can't do it on our own. Awakening. We need to get away and be with God and imagine. Imagine a church where, where its people said, yes, God, I will be with you and you alone. I will, I will seek after you with all my heart, with all that is in me. I will, I will push away everything else and give undivided attention to you. And wherever you're at, if it's 10 minutes or 15 or 30, make it a daily practice and habit. And it will change your life, I assure you. There's a second indispensable life-giving practice. You can probably guess I was going to say this one, but it's the idea of engaging with Scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says that the words in, in Scripture are alive and active. They pierce and divide. They cut to the heart. They expose what's there. And there's so much um, purpose behind the importance of reading the Bible. There's this landmark study that was done Initially, a number of churches, and it extended to hundreds of churches later, and which means thousands of, of followers of Jesus. And what they, one of the things they studied was what um, activities fostered the most amount of spiritual growth. So is it small groups or missional communities? Is it a worship service? Is it a sermon? Is it music? Is it mission trips, serving project? All those are good. I'm pro all those. We are here at Awakening. But... What they discovered, the one primary discovery is that it was about scripture engagement. That the the, the most catalytic thing a person can do for their spiritual life is open the Bible personally and read and reflect on it, engage with it. And so no matter what stage of spiritual uh, development you're in, this research pointed to the same thing, which is interesting. And so we ask, why is this so important? Perhaps some of us could guess, but when we engage in scriptures, the Bible itself says we are, um, we are renewed, and, and, and in the renewal, right, it says transformed by the renewing of your mind. In the renewal of your mind, you are transformed. The psalmist writes of hiding God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. And the purpose of reading and knowing Scripture is not simply to get a a perfect score on your heavenly report card or something. 
The purpose of reading and knowing and understanding Scripture is so the work of God can be done in your life. 2 Timothy 3 says it like this, All Scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired. It's the words of God. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, in right living, in living like Jesus, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's for the equipping. And then back in the Old Testament, there's this great text in the book of Joshua at the very beginning. Talking to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it. Turn it over in your mind. Mull it over. Reflect on it. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I love what, what that text says. And, and, and you know what? Awakening this year, we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, we're um, doing something we're calling the Bible Reading Plan. And we decided not to go through the whole Bible, but to start a little bit with um, like smaller chunks. So we're doing the New Testament in a year, which basically means you read a chapter a day, five days a week, about 10 minutes a day, probably less. That incorporates prayer and all. And, and so you read five days and you get two days off, or let's be honest, we get time to catch up, <laughs> right? But we want to encourage you, take this on. And hey, if you haven't started, it's not too late. You've only missed 10 chapters. You can start today. You can make up for it later, I promise. On your days off, in fact, you could too. But, but this is important. But, but here's the thing. Sometimes we get caught up, if we do read the Bible, in how much of the Bible we get through. It's less about how much and a lot more about how. How are we reading the Bible? How are we approaching this book? Because to, to read, um, sorry, to experience the Bible in this transformational way, we have to learn to read it deeply. We're not reading it for information, by the way. We're reading it, this intention, to read it for transformation. We're not simply collecting knowledge. We have to apply the knowledge. We have to implement in our, in our life. And when we come to the Scriptures, I mean, come with an open spirit. Perhaps you want to pray and posture your heart before the text that you read, the chapter, the verse, the paragraph, and say, God, what do you want to speak to me? Because God speaks through this book. God transforms people through this book. The research tells us, the Bible tells us, experience in many of our lives tells us. And yet so many Christians, the stats are dismal, 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 whatever the word is, dismal. Right, of Christians who don't read the Bible on a regular basis in their life. They're missing out. This isn't a guilt thing. This is a transformation. Don't you long to become the person God wants you to become? Without the truth and the words, the, the alive and active words of the Bible, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss the mark. And we can come to the Scriptures and say, God, meet me here. The goal isn't to master the text. The goal is to let the text master us. And what if we came to the scriptures every day and made it a habit and said, God, show up, meet with me, speak to me. Because when we engage in a deeper kind of reading and open our souls and, and remain repentant and willing to change and say, God, challenge me, convict me, perhaps encourage me, 
move me along, guide me. Right? We engage our mind, but also our hearts and our souls and imaginations and curiosity, our wills. And when we open ourselves to a deeper level of understanding and insight that grows out of and leads us deeper into our personal relationship with Christ, right, with the person behind the text. That's what it does. And it is in the context of relational intimacy, it's a context of relational intimacy that real life change happens. So right now, you can determine in your heart, I'm going to make this a new practice Every day, whether it's in the morning, at night, somewhere in the middle of the day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up at the same place at the same time, and I'm going to make this a habit. And it's going to shape who I become. You can make that commitment. Perhaps you want to do the Bible reading plan. It brings us to this third indispensable spiritual practice, a little bit different one, but in his own way, Jesus practiced um, the, the principle of this as well. And so if we step back... Probably solitude and prayer, Bible reading didn't surprise you. This one might be a little different than, than, than how you approach it. But, but, but here's the, the reality. Many approaches to spiritual growth assume that the same methods will produce the same growth in different people, but they don't. So, so the third life-giving practice is something I will call sacred pathways. There's an author named Gary Thomas who originally came up with this idea. But it gets at this whole unique side of you because you've been created by God as a unique person. And his plan to grow you, his plan to grow you will not look the same as his plan to grow other people. I mean, what would grow an orchid would drown a cactus. What would feed a mouse would starve an elephant. All those entities need light, food, air, water, but in different amounts and conditions. The key is not treating everyone or everything the same. It is finding the unique contributions that help you grow in your case. And so Gary Thomas lays out this paradigm that I'll give a brief explanation of a handful of sacred pathways. And as I go through these, perhaps you go, uh, perhaps you resonate with one or two of them. They're ways that you can uniquely connect to God and find life for your soul, for your life, and see transformation happen. So the first is simply put, the worship pathway. This person would sense God near us when they're singing worship songs, much like we did this morning, to God, or when they have their hands lifted in symbolic posture of surrender. It is effortless to sense that connection to God when they are expressing their affection through worship. Another pathway is what might be called the activist pathway. If you have this, you may find yourself intensely aware of God's presence when you're neck deep in a project that would most likely bore other people. Fighting for some form of justice or cause is when you are most aware of your alignment with God and His presence. Then there's the serving pathway. When you're serving others, you truly feel as if you're serving God Himself. And many of us struggle with this. We have a hard time connecting acts of service to acts of worship. But someone with this pathway intuitively connects these two things. And then we have the intellectual pathway. You love God through learning. And when your mind is filled with great thoughts, you're drawn deeply to God. You, you love reading a thoughtful book that most likely would put a friend of yours to sleep. And to you, learning isn't an obligation, it is life-giving, and it tunes you into God's power and His presence. And then we have the sensate pathway, 
And if this is you, you are most aware of God when you're using your five senses. So you take in sights and sounds and aromas around you, and they register meaning in your spirit. For you, experiences that deeply involve your senses are the gateway to experiencing God. Then we have the traditionalist pathway. You love historical liturgies. So when you are in an atmosphere that brings that kind of structure to, to, you know, and, and signature attention to things like prayer and Bible reading and meditation, other sacred rituals, you find yourself very centered in God. It's as if the rituals open your heart up to God. Then the enthusiast pathway, you love to grow through people. So relationships are vehicles to greater awareness of God and his deeply relational nature. Being with people is healing and life-giving to you in a way that draws you to greater alignment with the Spirit. Then you have the contemplative pathways I alluded to earlier. You're drawn to solitary reflection and prayer. Being in your own thoughts and being still are actually revitalizing to you. You recharge when you can move away from the noise and the busyness and move into the quiet stillness where the Spirit is more accessible. You resonate with Scripture's call to be still and know that I am God. Some of you contemplative types love to journal. And by the way, we have these great awakening journals that we have one for anybody who wants one. You can get one on your way out today. So you can write thoughts of God, thoughts of um, what you're reading in the scriptures, prayers if you want to write. I write my prayers often because I get so distracted in prayer. I want to write them out. But contemplative, contemplative types love journals. Some of you go, yeah, I just can't journal or I have like 19 dates in between you know, each journal entry. Anybody like that? Well, if it helps to know, Jesus never journaled, so you're good. Um, nor did Moses or Ruth or Esther or a lot of other people in the Bible. So not saying journaling is bad, but just saying um, it's, it's like a hammer, right, that's in the toolbox you can use. Anyway, aesthetic pathway, you're drawn to disciplines. Indulgence takes you further away from a sense of peace and wholeness. Discipline carries you closer. You are, more, you are most at rest when you are taking concrete steps to grow, reflect, learn, and surrender to God's voice. And finally, there's the naturalist pathway, or some might call it the creation pathway, you most see God in nature. Nothing sounds more soul-giving to you than to take a hike through the foothills, to sit by the ocean shore, sit by a rushing river. And as you take in the beautiful creation of God, His nearness is most palatable to you, palpable to you. And His presence just naturally flows in you in those moments. So often we, we, we will recognize our pathways because we find ourselves being recharged in those moments. Or making decisions, perhaps, when we're doing a particular activity. And every one of us, when we find our pathway, we become more receptive and open to God's Spirit, to His working. We become attuned to Him when we engage in our primary spiritual pathways. And in that way, finding your pathway is indispensable. Because it helps give on-ramps for you to spiritually flourish rather than languish. I know and I know you know that walking with God can sometimes be an uphill battle, demands perseverance, right? We carry sin, we have to confess, we live in a world that, that pulls us away in all kinds of ways. And these pathways really are, are, are how I view them, they're like built-in momentum, like the wind behind our backs, in a sense, as we follow this narrow road. So, so wherever there's instinctive momentum with God, I want to jump into that. I, I want to take part of that. And so, in the final analysis, here's what I would say to you, just to close. 
is I don't know where this whole conversation lands for you, but your habits and your practices will determine who you become, will determine your destination in terms of the essence and substance of who you are. And God is at work in your life. And I think we all have to ask the question, what practices or habits will you determine to be intentional with, to help provide the structure and the space for your growth? And when you do that, I mean, remember four things. Remember, keep it personal, right? I mean, start with one or two new practices. Don't start with eight. Start with one or two new things and practice them in ways that fit your personality and the particularities of your life. Keep it realistic. I mean, don't, um, you know, you, I mean, you have to consider your stage in life. You have to continue, consider your schedule, your demands, your family, your work, all that. All right, so be realistic. Be balanced. Some things come more naturally to you. Others stretch you. You need a mix of both from time to time at least. And then fourth, be flexible. I mean, don't get rigid with these. This is the danger of spiritual discipline, spiritual practices, that we get rigid and legalistic. These are intended to free us, to open ourselves to the work of God's Spirit, to experience in His presence and transformation. And all of us, All of us were created to experience God, to walk with God. Our soul will be left unsatisfied if we don't connect to the only one who can satisfy us. So my encouragement to you is get a journal, get a Bible reading plan, but most of all, write down your plan. What is it that are going to be your habits, your practices And keep the hope of transformation, of becoming all that God dreams and all that God designed you for to become that person. Will you pray with me? Father, we pause in this morning. And this lands at different places, I know, with where people are in their lives. But my prayer this morning, God, first and foremost, is that people wherever they are, however uniquely you've designed them, would experience you and get to know you and find you in their life. I pray you would give them the determination and the resilience and the humility to say yes to you, God. I will open my spirit. I will, I will carve out space in my life to, to put you at the center and to give you undivided attention so that you will transform me. I pray for transformation in our church. God, that you would do that work and that we would do our part in participating to what you want to do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.